Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Emily Wanderer-Cohen. And Emily is the founder of EWC Trauma-Informed Coaching, intergenerational trauma expert, speaker, and international best-selling author of From Generation to Generation, Healing Intergenerational Trauma Through Storytelling. A second-generation Holocaust survivor, Emily brings a combination of personal experience and trauma-informed training to her unique healing programs for descendants of trauma survivors. Hair and eye color, facial features, and more can be passed down from one generation to the next. Well, so can trauma. My next guest, Emily Wanderer-Cohen, is going to be explaining how trauma is often inherited. While I'm sure you'd rather inherit other things, like a special keepsake or a memento, the good news is Emily is going to share how you can recognize it and heal it. Here's Emily. Okay, everybody. Today we have with us Emily Wanderer-Cohen. She's going to be talking about uh, intergenerational trauma. And so often when we we talk about betrayal, it's it's the betrayal that happened to us. But, you know, it can stem from the previous generation, maybe even the generation before that. So Emily is going to shed lots of light on this whole topic. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, Debbie. Oh, thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about how trauma, how is trauma, how can it be intergenerational? Um, well, it can be passed down both, uh, psychologically and, uh, physically. Uh, there are more and more studies every day, uh, in a field that's just exploding called epigenetics. And it's, a obviously a subset of genetics mm-hmm. and what, uh, it, they basically epigeneticists study how genes are changed from external sources. And there have been a variety of studies. The most, uh, the most pertinent and interesting one uh, that kind of demonstrates how trauma can be passed down generationally is one that was done uh, in early, I think it was 2013 in at Emory University. And, and, and before you go on with that, is this just so I, I frame it for everyone, epigenetics, would this be like Bruce Lipton's work, biology of belief and things like that, how uh, a, a, a belief that could be, you know, it could turn into uh, change gene expression. Is that um, along yeah, the same lines here? It, it's more if if your audience is familiar with Bessel van der Kolk, the mm-hmm. his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Uh huh. Sure. It it's very much uh, okay. related to that. So, okay. Um. Yeah. So at Emory University, the researchers uh, decided they they took some mice. And um, I was just reading an article today about where people said, why are they, you know, why are they traumatizing mice? And mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like, well. <laughs> <laughs> Setting trauma and traumatizing mice. Right. Well, let, <laughs> let's just do it to people. Anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, the classic. So they took a, a group of prepubescent mice. Mm-hmm. So no, there were no babies and there were no pregnancies in this group. And they subjected them uh, to two things simultaneously. One was an electric shock and the other was a smell of cherry blossoms. Mm-hmm. And so for you know several weeks, the, these mice came to associate the smell of cherry blossoms 
with pain, with an electric shock. Mm-hmm. Um, after a while, they took away the the actual shock aspect and only introduced the smell of cherry blossoms. So what do you think happened? The mice ran around as if they were in pain because they'd been conditioned to associate the two. So that's one of those things that everybody goes, yeah, okay, fine. You know, that's, they're feeling it firsthand. But the more interesting part of this study was that they then looked at this, the second generation of mice Mm -hmm. and the third generation of mice and the fourth generation of mice. So remember, these were prepubescent mice that they originally tested or, or, you know, studied and, so these, you know, the second, third, fourth generation of mice had no personal experience with that, the, the, the mm-hmm. connection between pain and cherry blossoms. And what they found is, you know, two, three, four, even five generations later, those mice would act as if they were in pain when they smelled the smell of cherry blossoms. Wow. So, I mean... That's an amazing experiment because it's true. Just so I can sum this up, just so I understand it, and I'm sure everybody else does already. I just I want to wrap it all up. So you're saying that the mice were they were exposed to prepubescent mice, so they weren't passing it down to uh, a known uh, baby, the, right? Right. They 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 had the shock and the cherry blossom smell, and then they associated one with the other. And then when the shock was removed, they still had the uh, the associated the pain with the cherry blossoms and that went on for four generations. You know, I want you to explain that even a little bit more, but was there a reason why they chose cherry blossoms? Did that have any uh, significance? Not that I know of. Okay. Uh, okay. I would have to go and ask them. I, I haven't, I've read a number of different articles and their, their specific study, but it didn't say. So, so interesting. I that myself. Yeah. So interesting. So, so then four or five generations, they're just associating this with another. Is and and I'm thinking the thing that comes to mind for me is the negativity bias, where you know, like let's say there's there's a stick. It's in our best interest to think that that stick is a snake, and then we're pleasantly surprised that it isn't. So you know, if we're mm-hmm. in that position, we can survive because if we if it was a snake and we thought it was a stick, it could mean death. So, you know, there's that. And I'm wondering, is this the same kind of thing where it's just passed down, like, you know, way back years and years and years ago, we had this kind of programmed into us and we still have that. Is that, you know, are you saying like, this is the same intergenerational? Well, not exactly because what, what epigenetics um, says is that, when someone is exposed to a certain trauma, then there there are genes that are turned on and off in their, you know, when they pass it down in the DNA to, in their offspring. So it, it can, it, it ends up evolving and changing. So, so it, yeah. So explain how you see it in your world of trauma survivors, Holocaust survivors, things like that. Uh, yeah. So I see that quite strikingly. Um, I see it in both both psychological and physical, and I'll explain a little bit of, of each. Um, I actually have worked with several children of Holocaust survivors who have 
memories of being in a concentration camp or being chased by Nazis or um, hiding from Nazis, but those memories aren't their own, but they believe that. They feel that terror. They, they have taken whatever their parents have felt and they have internalized it to that degree. Um, and there is, you know, there's no other explanation. They haven't heard those stories or that specific story from their friends or from their parents, I mean. Um, I actually grew up with uh, a, a boy at the time, a gentleman um, mm-hmm. who, uh, whenever he heard sirens, he would hide into the closet. Mm-hmm. And that was here in the USA. So, you know, that is a visceral reaction, but it's because of, I mean, his parents didn't talk about the Holocaust. So for him to have that reaction is um, pretty, pretty shocking, pretty startling. And Um, especially, I guess, because you said they weren't told stories about it or it wasn't like this was conversation going on in the home and then they internalized it and maybe thought that it happened to them. This was something they never even heard this. Right. Right. Because their parents were so damaged or they they said, hey, we're now in America or we're now in Canada and we are not going to to, you know, talk about it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and and back then, you know, a lot of people thought that was the best way to prevent it from marking their children or the grandchildren. And and we've come to find that it just marks them in a different way. Right. Um, And then, you know, physically, uh, there are a lot of studies and I see a lot of my clients with physical ailments. Like what type of physical ailments? So a lot of um, autoimmune deficiencies, Mm -hmm. uh, diseases, uh, fibromyalgia, uh, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are um, a lot of studies that show that children of Holocaust survivors have reduced levels of cortisol, mm-hmm. which is stress hormone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've actually, it's interesting, I've actually spoken with an epigeneticist about that. Like, what does that mean? Because mm-hmm. usually we would think a reduced level of cortisol would mean that, you know, we wouldn't get so stressed out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't regulate right. But from what I've heard from multiple epigeneticists is that you can't really make that connection, that it could be that you get stressed and you can't bring yourself back down. Mm-hmm. So they're, they haven't, they've, they've, found that reduced level, but they haven't been able to like specifically say, this is what it does. It does different things in different people. Right. And, and, and I know stress does, it can, it can elevate your cortisol, cortisol levels or reduce it where you just don't have the reserves. You can't make those reserves quickly enough and possibly you can't, you know, you just can't replenish right there, or you're just staying at that elevated state either way. I mean, stress Mm -hmm. does create those symptoms, illnesses, conditions, disease. So what, what happens after that? So let's say someone, you see someone with, uh, they they have these physical mental emotional symptoms how do you know it's tied to an unhealed uh you know familial trauma um it it's typical 
you know, they, they will come to me and say, I don't know why I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm depressed. I don't, there's nothing in my life or that I've experienced that explains this. Mm -hmm. So that's when we start and we dig deeper into, um, you know, the, the parents and grandparents, the, the family constellation, so it's like when, when you go to the doctor and you get a family, they ask your family history for disease. <laughs> You're asking mm-hmm. family history to see where the, where the trauma is. Right. So, so at that point, like, let's say uh, you find out, well, their grandparent parent was a Holocaust survivor. Are there certain things that you'll see typically? Uh, yeah, there are actually uh, very, uh, you know, there are, there are, I call them my top 10, but I'll mm-hmm. give you just a few. Sure. They're really common. Um, one is this hypervigilance that uh, always to be on the lookout, always wary, always distrustful. Um, a lot of children of Holocaust survivors have bags packed at all times, just in case mm-hmm. they need mm-hmm. to flee. Uh, I worked with uh, one woman who just could not give even her closest friends her address. She never wanted anybody to know where she lived. She would always go to their place. She didn't want that. Um, uh, And I actually worked with her to get past that, actually. She came to me because she wanted... She was like, my, my son is having, his wife's having a baby and I just don't want to keep this, you know, getting passed down because my, I see my son have the same anxiety about people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, she was like, I just don't want that for my grandchild. I want and to break it, that cycle. Yeah. And it just sounds so exhausting. And, and some of those other ones that you mentioned are so typical to betrayal, the hypervigilance and the, you know, the, the always wary about, about who you can trust and who you can't trust. I mean, that is, that's so common, but the bags packed. Wow. That just sounds, that just sounds exhausting. And I I guess, you know, a couple of others that are really, really um, common. One is this, uh, we were always told that, you know, our emotions were bad. You're too happy, too excited Mm -hmm. to this, that, that this I don't want to say dumbing down, but this feeling that we, that, that you can't feel happy or you can't feel something intensely because that would then mean that you would stand out or that you might be disappointed and some, something might happen. My mother would always say, you know, I'm never disappointed because I don't have any expectations. Wow. Okay. So everything is very, you know, very, um, low level, you know, my, my mother was very classically damaged by the Holocaust. There, uh, is a group, they've kind of narrowed it that women between 18 and 25, kind of that child main childbearing Mm -hmm. years, uh, they were the most damaged by the Holocaust because that's when women really come into their own. You know, men are a little bit later, but women tend to be that 18 to 24. And my mom was, I mean, she is textbook in terms of the unavailable mother, the the distant, uh, the unemotional. I'm sure you know the the study about the 
the blank face, the mom and the baby with the, with the share blank. it for everybody. If you so, can. um, so there was a study done. This had nothing to do with Holocaust survivors, but mm-hmm. it had to do with a mother child bonding experience. And, uh, you know, they had a mother with interacting with her baby in a high chair and, you know, it was very sweet. And, you know, the mother and the baby are both like, Goo goo guy, you know, just mm-hmm. interacting, and the mom is making faces. And then, for one minute, they, the researchers, had the mother just have a blank look on her face and mm-hmm. didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the baby kept trying to make the the baby was really uncomfortable mm-hmm. and kept trying to get the same reaction from the mother that he had before. Mm-hmm. Sure. The, the interaction and the warmth and the, the, you know, the cooing and, uh, and the mother just stood there with a blank face and the baby became frantic. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I know I've heard those studies with, about, uh, the failure to thrive. The baby's in the, uh, there was in an orphanage or something. And when the caretakers weren't, weren't loving, didn't hold the babies, they, they didn't, they didn't, thrive. They didn't grow. Wow. And they don't know how to self-soothe. Yeah. So how do you, how do you heal from something like that? Well, the main thing, you know, just think about this is that epigenetics, if, if environment can change, you know, an external environment can change your DNA, then it stands to reason that you have some control in a way to stop it or change it back or change it to a different way. So what I, I work with clients on is the first, you know, the first step is to really understand and accept that that's what's happening. And the second step is to then work on your mindset because we all have the ability, once we know what's going on, we have the ability to intellectualize and step away from it and, and then change our behavior. And I want to talk about the mindset piece, but I first want to address, of course, the show is about betrayal. And I imagine the betrayal here is the betrayal of your expectations. When you have, when you're dealing with intergenerational trauma, you had an expectation, let's say that your mom was supposed to be a certain way. Maybe Mm -hmm. you saw other friends, moms acting in a certain way, and that wasn't what you received. So the betrayal could have been there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it was, you know, only until I, only when I, you know, actually when I hit 50, that I Mm -hmm. finally Mm -hmm. really unpacked everything. But yeah, my mother was, you know, I would come home from school and be upset about something. And her response would be, well, what did you do to deserve that? Mm. So, you know, that is that is a definite betrayal of the mother-child pact, I guess, mm-hmm. right? It's, uh, you know, I, having two children myself, I could not imagine reacting that way when my child came home. And, However, you know, I was going to say, there's the, there's the gift in it. And I know with certain things, I, I, I sort of prefer looking at myself uh, in some ways as almost dyslexic, like where something could be jumbled up and 
you have to unjumble it so it doesn't come out the same way. And uh-huh. it sounds like what you're what you're saying is you know how it was delivered and served to you, and you don't want to give that to your kids. So what right. a gift you're giving your own children. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and some things I will say. I'm very honest. I didn't do a great job. I know that it was so incredibly hard for me when my children came home with a B, which is, you know, that's actually a good grade, but I came home as a child with an A minus or a B plus, And my mom would say, why didn't you get the A? Mm-hmm. And here I was with my, both my kids in high school at one point, And I was like, Mm-hmm. you know, just fighting the urge, like, why can't you do that? And it is, it's super hard because that's, that's ingrained, right? It's imprinted in you. And, uh, you know, I wasn't always good at it. I tried really hard. Um, I apologized to my kids afterwards and they knew where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. You sound like Omi. And I'm like, trying not to. I'm sorry. And and you know what's so great great about what you're saying? You're breaking the cycle. You're breaking this chain of going from one generation to the next with something that isn't, that doesn't feel good, that isn't helpful, that isn't healing. You know, it reminds me of when you picture uh, snow, let's say snow falls on the ground and then there's a path that's paved. It is really well-worn. You know, you're walking on it day after day. And if you were to pave a new path, it would be rocky and uncomfortable and you may slip and fall. But if you stuck to that new path over time, it would be as well-worn as the first. And it sounds like, you know, the slips and falls come in the the idea that here you were paving this new path. And kudos right. to you for even, first of all, recognizing a new path had to be created and then and then doing that. And, and what you're doing is really laying down new tracks in your brain every time you do that. So, exactly. yeah. So, so that brings us to some mindset stuff. What are some uh, what are some things that you teach that when someone is dealing with this intergenerational trauma, first of all, do they even know when they're, when they're experiencing something that that's where, where this is coming from and what do they do then? Well, yeah, when, when they work with me, it becomes very clear, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we get to the heart of it very quickly. Uh, some of the things that that I teach is um, we work a lot on writing Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, expressing on paper what you've been feeling because a lot of times these thoughts just go around and around and around in your head. And if they do that, you can't change them really. Mm -hmm. Um, You need to change the story. And, you know, it's just a story you're telling yourself. So by getting it out on paper and by working with someone, it's not just journaling, but there are very specific trauma-informed prompts that I've created that help get you on that path and help me see where you might be getting stuck. And how Um, do you know they're progressing? What do you typically see? So that's a great question. So it's a combination of writing. Um, we do some uh, body work, some uh, mindset work, meditation. It's all kind of wrapped up. And what happens is throughout the, the weeks that we work together, clients will come back and say, well, he- here's guess what? I had that situation and I recognized it. And, you know, the first time it happened, 
I couldn't fix it, but I realized what was going on. And then the next time they come back and say, I feel so much lighter, so much happier. I feel like me. Mm. There's a lot of people that have, have had themselves buried because they were living under the, you know, the, the shadow of their parent. Everything was about their parent or their grandparent. And when they work through this, there's a feeling of lightness and they laugh and smile more and it's joyous and they take risks, you know, even little tiny risks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. change in small ways. But that's why it's not something you can do in one visit. Of course. Yeah. Of course. What a, a gift you're giving them. Process. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the, the body-based, you, been, you mentioned the body-based activities because this is in your cellular memory and talking it out isn't enough. You know, we need to just really get to it from, from a few different modalities. So what, what specifically do you do? What are some, what are some modalities you use? So um, what I use most frequently is meditation, calming, grounding the client, and then, you know, having them get in touch with their body from their feet up and then explain the sensations. Mm-hmm. And for, and it, it's, although that sounds simple, I hope everybody listening understands this. It's really not because so often in trauma, we just are not present in our bodies at all. So what you're doing is you're grounding them in their own bodies. Wow. Okay. And so then they'll start to feel better. They'll feel lighter, happier. That's wonderful. And then what does it do? Because now they're left with the, I don't know if there's either anger or forgiveness or what, what happens there because it wasn't their trauma but they right. owned it. What do they, what do they do with that? So that's a great question. What typically happens is they come in with anger and resentment and anxiety, and they leave with calm, joy, and forgiveness because that is the ultimate, uh, you know, freeing for us. Forgiveness is really for us, not about the other person. Mm. because, you know, we can't control anybody else, but the forgiveness is, is for us. And that's absolutely, you know, the end, um, end goal. It's that's powerful. So Emily, what do you want to make sure everyone knows before we wrap up? Um, I really want people to know that this inherited family trauma or intergenerational trauma, however you want to talk about it, whatever's passed down from one generation to the next is real. Uh, it, there, you know, there are, there are scientific studies. I know people who will say that it's, oh, they're too small to, to make a difference, you know, to, you know, to prove, but I absolutely believe in them from, my own experience and uh, working with clients. It's uh, it, every day I hear, you know, some story and it's not just the children of Holocaust survivors. I want people to understand that although most of the studies have been done on children of Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. and grandchildren now, that it's it's prevalent in so many different uh, different 
societies and family constellations, uh, like survivors of Rwanda and the Rwandan genocide and their children, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, uh, Native Americans. I mm -hmm. actually met a woman in Canada who's part of their Canada First Nations. Mm -hmm. And the the experiences and the feelings are the same. So, um, and, you know, even Hiroshima, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. the children and the grandchildren have a lot of that, those traumas that were passed down too. They weren't there, but it's, it's fascinating. It's just more prevalent than one might think. Right. Really fascinating. So just as eye color can be passed down, so can trauma. But the beauty is it can also be healed. Emily, I want to thank you so much because this is something that I'm sure people are experiencing and they don't know why they're feeling this way. But if they look at their family history here, that may be a great indicator why. And where can we learn more about you? Uh, you can learn more about me at uh, my website is traumahealingcoach.com. And uh, my Facebook page is uh, Trauma Healing Coach also. And um, I just do want to mention I have two books uh, on, and they're both available on Amazon. One is, I'm going to show you, even though this is not, <laughs> um, <laughs> From Generation to Generation, Healing Intergenerational Trauma Through Storytelling. Mm -hmm. And uh, my second book is actually not available in paperback yet, just ebook. And it's called The Daughter's Dilemma, um, a survival guide to caring for an aging, abusive parent. Oh, that's, that's such, it sounds like such an important book and important for anybody who's going through it. Emily, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you and your work and all the people that you help. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's got to be so frustrating to feel emotions and not have any idea where they stem from. As usual, it starts with awareness, and then it's a matter of healing lots of the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms that are really common with any type of betrayal. In Emily's case, it's the betrayal of expectations of what she thought a mother would be. But in any case, it can all be recognized, healed, and addressed. Stay in touch with Emily by going to TraumaHealingCoach.com, and we'll have all of her information in the show notes at PBT institute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. While there's so much that makes us who we are, we can also do so much to change what it is that isn't working for us. We don't have to learn to live with emotions that cause grief, anxiety, stress, and pain. We can recondition ourselves through working on our mindset, body-based practices, and more. And when we do, we can recreate a version of ourselves that's happy, healthy, and whole. And to get there, First, get a baseline of what your betrayal left in its wake by taking the post-betrayal syndrome quiz at pbtinstitute.com forward slash quiz. And let us support you. Go to Facebook and join our group, Women Hacking Betrayal, where we give information, tools, and support to help you move forward and heal once and for all. Can't wait to be with you next time. And here's to your breakthrough. Breakthrough.